If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Because we intend to fire our people up so much, until if they can't have their equal share in the house, they'll burn it down. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice. Welcome back to this History Extra podcast series, where we're charting some of the key moments in the transformative history of the US civil rights movement, the fight for equality that dominated mid-20th century America, with a legacy that continues to shape the world around us today. I'm Rhiannon Davis, section editor for BBC History magazine, and in this six-part series, I'm speaking to leading historians to explore some of the crucial moments that defined this struggle for racial equality. In each episode, our experts will recount one significant story from the movement and consider its place in the wider fight for civil rights. In our last episode, 
We were in the nation's capital in 1963, discussing the legendary March on Washington, which saw more than 250,000 people take to the streets in the name of jobs and freedom. And we also explored Martin Luther King Jr.'s seismic contribution to the civil rights movement. Today's episode sees us fast forward to the summer of 1964, and this time we have a ringside seat in the Oval Office. On the 2nd of July 1964, the nation's new president, Lyndon B. Johnson, affixed his signatures to one of the country's landmark pieces of legislation, the Civil Rights Act. I spoke to Tomiko Brown-Niggin, Dean of the Harvard Radcliffe Institute, Daniel P.S. Poole Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, and a Professor of History at Harvard, to find out what the atmosphere was like on that auspicious day. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed into law by President Lyndon Baines Johnson on July 2nd of 1964. When he signed the act into law, Martin Luther King Jr. and several other American civil rights leaders were behind him. They were there because the passage of the law and its enactment had been the product of a work between the executive branch, uh, the legislative branch, and the entire civil rights movement of which Martin Luther King Jr. and these other leaders were integral parts. In essence, the Civil Rights Act was a do-over. After the American Civil War, Congress had enacted constitutional amendments that had been designed to do the very things that over 100 years later, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did. But because of noncompliance in the Southern states and the U.S. Supreme Court's undermining of that Reconstruction-era legislation, there had not, in fact, been an era of civil rights and a new start for the freedmen. Instead, there had been violence and many efforts undertaken to keep Black Americans in a state of virtual slavery. And so this moment in 1964 was a great victory for the nation, for the principle of equality under law, and for these brave men and women of the Civil Rights Act who had put their bodies on the line in an effort to bring about this momentous occasion. What the Civil Rights Act did was to sweep away, in terms of its text, discrimination on the basis of race, sex, color, and religion in a wide variety of areas, in public spaces, in schools, in employment, It was truly the crowning legislative achievement of the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Act was a piece of legislation long in the making. Following decades of sustained grassroots activism and mass protests, such as the March on Washington, 
The act was originally proposed in 1963 by President John F. Kennedy, but Kennedy would never see it brought into fruition. Just five months later, he was assassinated by a sniper. Where would his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, stand on the issue? Kennedy had supported uh, the enactment of the Civil Rights Act and President Johnson, uh, who became president after Kennedy was assassinated, took up the mantle and pushed the Civil Rights Act through Congress. He understood that the time had come, that it was, you know, there, there's this idea that one should never waste a crisis. And essentially, Johnson was supportive of the concept of non-discrimination, and he seized on this moment of the assassination um, to push through Congress over the protest of many Southern senators this great legislative achievement. He understood that it was risky to do so. In fact, he, after the bill was signed into law, he said to some of members of his party that there would be consequences for uh, the Democrats backing the bill, for the Democratic president backing the bill, but he was willing to risk that for a generation or more uh, because it was the right thing to do. And he, of course, would receive credit for this crowning achievement of the civil rights movement, and he wanted that credit. Just five days after Kennedy had been killed, Lyndon B. Johnson spoke before a joint session of Congress and called for the Civil Rights Act to be signed into law as quickly as possible. While activists were thrilled, not everyone received the news with jubilation, including some in the government itself. Well, the opposition to the Civil Rights Act is concentrated among Southern Congress people and senators who were not supporters of desegregation. They were white supremacists. They were representatives of a region of the country that believed in oppression of Black Americans. This was the region of the country that had implemented, after the Civil War, these laws mandating racial segregation. And despite the protests and the violence in places like Birmingham, they were not convinced that there should be a federal law mandating non-discrimination in public accommodations and schools and employment. They were fiercely opposed. And frankly, President Kennedy had been quite beholden to that segment of the congressional delegation and had held off on supporting uh, a civil rights bill because he was captive to those individuals. But in the wake of the assassination of Kennedy, Johnson, as I mentioned, threw his weight behind the bill. He immediately took up the cause in his first State of the Union address. And despite the strong opposition from Southern members of Congress, he coaxed and cajoled members of his party and the Republican Party to approve the bill. And ultimately, uh, the House approved the bill with bipartisan support, 
And the same was true in the U.S. Senate. And this was, the the bill was passed um, despite a filibuster among the longest in U.S. history uh, that was staged to prevent uh, it even being uh, debated on the floor of the House. But it, it just took a lot of behind the scenes horse trading to get the bill passed, and uh, ultimately it was passed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The bill that Johnson signed into law was more ambitious than the one that Kennedy had originally proposed. Tomiko outlined some of the provisions of the Act, which were intended to transform the everyday lives of those who experience discrimination in America. It might be helpful to appreciate how successful it was to just recount the broad scope of the Civil Rights Act. Title II was a public accommodations title banning discrimination in public accommodations for establishments that were affecting interstate commerce. And so that meant that inns, hotels, motels, restaurants, cafeterias, lunch counters, soda fountains, theaters, concert halls, sports arena, and any range of other establishments were now available to Black Americans on an equal basis. Title IV banned discrimination in public education and authorized the U.S. Attorney General to receive complaints alleging denials of equal protection, to investigate the complaints, to file suits. There was 
a title that prohibited discrimination by recipients of federal funds on the basis of race, color, uh, and national origin. Again, giving the federal government the power to mandate, demand uh, non-discrimination. There was the Title VII, the Employment Discrimination Title, that banned discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. These are huge changes that the law facilitates in the everyday experience of Black Americans and others. But did sweeping pieces of federal legislation, like the 1964 Act, really result in tangible social change at the local level? To investigate that question, we're stepping away from the Civil Rights Act momentarily and turning the clock back to 1954, at the very beginning of the civil rights movement, when the Brown versus Board of Education decision was announced by the US Supreme Court. I spoke to Rebecca Brookman, an associate professor at Carleton College and the author of Massive Resistance and Southern Womanhood, to find out why this court ruling was so seismic. The Brown versus Board of Education ruling is actually a two-part ruling. So the first one came down on May 17th in 1954 by the Supreme Court. It was a unanimous ruling, so nine to zero. The second one came down more than a year later on May 31st in 1955. And this ruling cannot be overstated in its importance. And civil rights activists at the time, they actually recognized that. Because for the first time, the Supreme Court said that Racial segregation in public schools is unconstitutional, and thereby the court partially, at least, overruled the long-standing ruling from 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson, that said that separate but equal, so separate institutions for black and white people, as long as they were equal, were constitutional. What the court said, that is not the case. As a side note, institutions were never equal, right? That is very important to keep in mind. Many of uh, the, the listeners have probably seen water fountains, right? And you see a very nice water fountain for white people and a very, you know, rundown water fountain for black people. That is a systematic issue throughout the South when it comes to separate institutions. But for the first time, the Supreme Court said, it's not only the fact that this is unequal because you, you know, invest different different sums into this. The general idea of separate education is harmful to black children and it hampers their psychological self-worth and development. And that was new. Southern states reacted to this ruling in varying ways. Some simply stuck their heads in the sand and pretended that it didn't exist. Others, however, chose to integrate. In the Deep South, the earliest to decide to desegregate was Arkansas in 1955. The school they decided upon was Central High School in the city of Little Rock. In 1957, two years after plans for desegregation were first drawn up, a group of black American teenagers that became known as the Little Rock Nine enrolled at the formerly all-white school. 
when it comes to the Little Rock Nine, they are some of the most famous pupils at the time. And you have to remember, those are teenagers. We're talking about 16-year-olds mostly at the time. The Little Rock Nine is a shorthand for nine black students at the time. Most of people probably have seen the infamous photo of Elizabeth Eckford as she tries to enter the school on September 4th in 1957. But there were eight other pupils that were also supposed to start school at the time. What happened here and how they came to be chosen is that after the Brown decision in 1954, uh, the Little Rock School Board instructed its superintendent to drop a plan for desegregation. That plan changed continuously, particularly after the implementation ruling, the second Brown ruling in 1955, that gave no firm deadline for desegregation, but asked schools to make a prompt start, but then proceed with what they called all deliberate speed. Many school boards took this as a justification for tokenism and for delay, using the tactic of minimum compliance as resistance. So what was supposed to be substantial desegregation Little Rock became less and less. At the time, however, the superintendent of schools in Little Rock asked black high school students at Dunbar High School, which was the black high school in town, for volunteers who was interested essentially in attending a desegregated school. He tried to lure them essentially by saying that you would also be able to attend extracurricular activities that are not present at your school, right? Such as choir or football, things like that. So he tried to appeal to students. And some students volunteered also supported by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, very active with Daisy Bates at the time. However, most of these students were eventually denied a transfer because they were put through a battery of tests um, to make sure that only the most academically gifted students would be accepted or were accepted. And in addition to that, Virgil Blossom, the superintendent, interviewed every single one of them. In the end, only nine students were left who actually got permission to transfer to Little Rock Central High School. And this is why we only have nine black students that were supposed to desegregate Little Rock Central High School, which had over 2,000 white students at the time. Although they were well within their rights to enrol at the high school, when they actually arrived, the students faced a wave of violence. So... The Little Rock Nine were treated horribly by some of the students and more courteously by others. Again, there's no such thing as a unified white student body at the time. They had the support of Daisy Bates, of other black activists who debriefed them, for example, who were there to support them. But it took a large toll on their mental health. As you can imagine, just the first school day that was supposed to be a happy time on September 4th, they were denied entry by the National Guard. Officially, Governor Earl Faubus deployed the National Guard to prevent any violent outbreaks. This is how he introduced his decision the night before as to why he was deploying the National Guard. In fact, the National Guard acted as segregationists because they denied entry only to the black pupils. Elizabeth Eckford was the first student to arrive that day. And she had missed a phone call because they were all supposed to get there, you know, as a group with Daisy Bates, but she came to the school by herself. And she was not only denied entry by the National Guard, she was set upon by hundreds of white segregationist rioters at the time who yelled at her, who spit at her, who shoved her, who called for her lynching. 
So that was the experience that Elizabeth Eckford had. She only had support by a few white women in the crowd, but she basically had to make her way out of this crowd, take the bus and go back home. For the next two weeks, students again were denied entry. When a federal court decided that Orville Faubus was in fact in violation of the desegregation ruling and withdrew the National Guard, on September 23rd, there was a mob of over 2,000 people in front of the school. The students had to enter the school through a side entrance. And when the crowd outside learned that they were in, they wanted to storm, they actually wanted to, you know, storm the school. Police barely held them off. The students were rushed out of school because people again in the crowd called for their lynching. Only after the federal troops intervened the day after, students were actually able to attend school, but they had to be escorted inside of the school by paramilitary at the time. And when they were inside of the school, they were faced with bullying tactics by some of the white supremacist students. For example, shoving them in the hallway, using, you know, racial slurs against them, ostracizing them. Again, not the entire student body. Some of the student body said that if the adults would leave us alone, we'd be fine, actually. But oftentimes, children of white supremacist women were agitated by these white supremacist women and actually, you know, acted against the Little Rock Nine at the time. Famously, Minnie Jean Brown, one of the Little Rock Nine, was expelled from school once she retaliated against a bully. That happened in the cafeteria in 1958. She dropped a bottle of chili on this bully's head, but she was expelled for this violent gesture. We have to keep in mind, though, that was her retaliation after months of bullying. So the Little Rock Nine did not have an easy time in Central High School. This terrible treatment fitted into a wider pattern of white supremacist resistance to desegregation, known as massive resistance. Massive resistance, the term is an umbrella term, and it denotes a movement in the South, not only in the South, at expense also to the North, but primarily in the South, that was both part of a long history of white supremacy in the South, but that was also a very concerted response to the Brown v. Board of Education decisions. It was essentially an attempt to unify the South, and this term came into existence or was coined by Virginia Senator Harry Byrd, who was himself a white supremacist. He mentioned it at a press conference in 1956 in February. In fact, at the time, press wasn't sure if he had said massive resistance or passive resistance. Uh, the historian George Lewis has written about that. Um, massive resistance sounded more vigorous, so they ran with it, essentially. And what was important here was that it was both a top-down and a bottom-up phenomenon. So for a long time, historians have thought that this was mostly Southern politicians initiating massive resistance. And indeed, in March 1956, almost every Southern congressperson sound, signed what we call the Southern Manifesto, the Declaration of Constitutional principles, which rallied against the Brown verdict, said that they would oppose it by all lawful means and would eventually overturn it. So it was a top-down phenomenon, but it was also a bottom-up phenomenon. Because very shortly after the Brown decision, the first one in 1954, you have a movement started in Mississippi um, called the Citizens' Council Movement, where you have ordinary citizens of every walk of life also rallying against massive resistance. So this is a movement that encompasses both the grassroots and politicians, and sometimes politicians lead it, and sometimes grassroots activists lead it. Little Rock is one of the examples where grassroots activists essentially pressured politicians 
into taking a stronger stance against desegregation. And any white Southern liberals who supported desegregation were targeted by massive resistance too. In fact, the movement was designed to isolate those few white Southerners who had championed civil rights, sometimes for decades, and put pressure on them. But you also have Southern liberals at the time. For example, the Southern Conference on Human Welfare, already founded in the 1930s, um, still active in the 1950s. You have white members in civil rights groups, such as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who are very active in day-to-day activism, who are active in lobbying, who are active in freedom schools that tries to educate people when it comes to their rights. So you do have people who are very much in favor of equalization from a personal point of view, oftentimes from a religious point of view, oftentimes people would just or would, you know, legitimize that by referring to their Christian beliefs. So when it comes to the idea that there was support for civil rights also among a white population, that was absolutely also the case. However, many white Americans, including self-proclaimed white moderates, looked for ways to resist integration in the long term. In fact, the last Southern state to desegregate its first public educational institution is South Carolina in January 1963, when Harvey Gantt, a black student, starts to attend Clemson University. So we have nine years between the first Brown verdict and South Carolina desegregating a single public educational institution. So you see how long this already takes. School desegregation starts in earnest only after the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and only after the federal government leans on states' governments and puts up pressure by denying federal monetary aid to schools that still practice segregation. So it is only the monetary incentive, essentially, and the legal pressure that you have through the Civil Rights Act, that schools actually start to desegregate. At the same time, a lot of schools found different ways to circumvent desegregation. I just mentioned, you know, pupil placement laws, zoning laws um, that are race neutral, but still act as segregators in a way. You also have a massive uptick in private schools in the South. So you have hundreds of people starting to attend private schools. That happens in tandem with what we call white flight people moving out of school districts into suburban areas that are predominantly white and therefore evading school desegregation. And you have support of this by state legislatures reappropriating funds for public schools and turning them into vouchers for private schools, for example. So you have a very successful school desegregation. When you look at the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s, At this time, only 30% of black pupils who used to be at all black schools are still in all black schools. So it is successful, absolutely. But at the same time, there's also a very successful movement to circumvent desegregation for white pupils. Keeping this case in mind, let's return to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Even though the legislation was so wide-reaching, Were there ways in which it fell short? There are ways to appreciate limitations of the Civil Rights Act. In short, um, it did not address the material needs of Black Americans that the the deprivation uh, that had been wrought by the system of segregation, 
uh, indeed by slavery that had been in existence for so many years. Uh, there was great poverty. And the Savards Act said nothing about any of that. For millions of Black Americans, the Civil Rights Act was not that helpful at all. And I will say that subsequent legislation, including a 1964 Economic Opportunity Act, began to do some of the work of disestablishing the economic uh, vestiges of segregation. And then, of course, there were subsequent laws, including the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, that also were vital to doing the unfinished business of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was meant to outlaw literacy tests, to provide for the appointment of federal examiners in jurisdictions that had been guilty of um, these kinds of discriminatory voting mechanisms that I mentioned uh, before. It was designed to make non-discrimination in uh, politics a reality by allowing the federal government to be deeply involved in the process or in the oversight of voting. Uh, the Voting Rights Act of 65, really, again, going back to where I started, it was meant to make real the 15th Amendment that had been passed after the Civil War to prohibit uh, discrimination against uh, the right to vote in the area of the right to vote uh, on account of race or color. And so the Voting Rights Act does this uh, unfinished business of both the 15th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which did include some provisions related to voting, but it was much more muscular and inserted the federal government into oversight of uh, the political process in a way that it, it just had not uh, been done since the Civil War era. And so it, too, was immediately challenged in the courts and was affirmed by the Supreme Court in a series of decisions. Three years later, it was followed by the Fair Housing Act. So the Fair Housing Act of 1968 was uh, a law that made it illegal to refuse to rent, sell, or negotiate housing on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, family status, and so forth. And it was enacted in the wake of uh, activism by Dr. King and the civil rights movement and of his assassination, because again, one doesn't waste a crisis. Also, it was a very volatile moment. And King had been assassinated at a time when he had become much more vocal about the need to disestablish the material uh, consequences of segregation. And so he fought for anti-poverty legislation. He fought for affordable and fair housing. Uh, and so this Fair Housing Act is a consequence, again, of the civil rights movement putting pressure, bringing pressure to bear on uh, Congress and the president and 
legislation following. From our vantage point in 2023, can we see these three key acts as ultimately successful? Tomiko argues that their legacy is mixed. I would say it's common these days for uh, some people to say that the changes of the civil rights era were inadequate, that they didn't do enough, that nothing has changed. But I would say that that is quite wrong for all of the reasons that I was suggesting before. By its very terms, the Civil Rights Act was very meaningful, allowing Black individuals to have access to not just restaurants and theaters, but public spaces um, that they had been denied access to before, parks, uh, swimming pools, and, and so forth. Think about the difference in one's life under a regime where one could not have access to you know, fresh air and uh, the ability to have recreation in a public park or a public swimming pool and uh, a society in which one does have access to those things. So yes, the Civil Rights Act was highly successful um, in implementing a society in which segregation was proscribed and was no longer the norm in all of the areas that it touched upon, including, importantly, uh, the workplace uh, and schools. Um, The Voting Rights Act was highly successful uh, after it was initially passed with places in the South, Black voters being able to to elect representatives of their choice. And of course, many millions of new Black voters were registered and able to exercise uh, the franchise after the uh, Voting Rights Act. And then the Fair Housing Act also was successful. You know, housing discrimination has declined over the years, and the rate of segregation between Black and white families has fallen significantly since, say, 1970. But by the same token, it's also true that a lot of work remains to be done. Um, including because, say, in the context of the Voting Rights Act, recently the U.S. Supreme Court has issued decisions that undermine, take away the federal government's ability to intervene and ensure that uh, the franchise is available on an equal basis and without regard to race uh, in those places in the South Uh, that were covered by the Voting Rights Act. In addition, I'll mention that the Fair Housing Act has not been implemented to the extent that some have advocated, meaning that there is a provision of the Fair Housing Act that mandates that the government take affirmative steps to ensure residential integration And that's been a very controversial provision. I would say that the Fair Housing Act, its promise, certainly is we've fallen short of its promise. Next episode, we'll be meeting one of the key figures in the story of American and Pan-African political activism, Malcolm X. 
he became a leading advocate for another strain of black American politics, one that invigorated some and scared others, black nationalism. Many thanks to my experts for this episode. Tomiko Brown-Niggin, the Dean of the Harvard Radcliffe Institute, the Daniel P.S. Poole Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and a Professor of History in the Harvard Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and Rebecca Brookman, an Associate Professor at Carleton College and the author of Massive Resistance and Southern Womanhood, published by the University of Georgia Press in 2021. The historical consultant for this series is Adrienne Lent-Smith, Associate Professor of History at Duke University who specialises in African-American history and 20th century history. This episode was written and researched by me, Rhiannon Davis, and it was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks were by Daniel Adamson. Thanks for listening. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.